Welcome to another episode of Energy Talks. I'm journalist Markham Hislop. This podcast is all about interesting conversations with energy and climate experts from around the world. And don't forget to follow us on social media, on Twitter, at E-N-E-R-G-I Media, and my personal handle, at PoliticalHam, on Facebook, facebook.com slash energymedia. Energy.media is our website, where you'll find Markham and Energy columns, news stories and op-eds, and the Energy Student Resources Portal, a wiki-style collection of our work that's free for high school teachers and university professors to use in their classrooms. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. In this interview, I'm going to be talking to Darren Plested, who is a partner in Deloitte's Future of Transportation and Mobility Department, about a new report that he's co-authored titled Electric- Electrified Fleets Pave the Way to Emissions Reduction. So welcome to the interview, Darren. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Now, I'm really uh, interested in medium and heavy-duty electric vehicles because I I don't think we pay enough attention to them. You know, they're not as sexy as a Tesla or, you know, uh, I don't know, whatever. There's lots of really, really interesting light-duty cars and trucks, Ford F-150 Lightning, um, those sorts of vehicles. But nobody gets too excited about a garbage truck or a delivery van or a class eight semi truck, uh, tractor, you know, truck, that sort of thing. But A, that's where most of Canada's uh, greenhouse gas emissions come from on the transportation side. And and B, if there's any opportunity for Canada to grab a competitive advantage, first mover advantage, something like that in the electric vehicle industrial side of things, manufacturing supply chains, this has got to be it. Uh, it it seems like this is a a timely uh, report from that point of view. Well, thanks for saying that. And yes, I totally agree with you. And through the studies that we did, we found that twenty five percent of Canada's carbon emissions are actually from the transport sector. And if you break that down, about twenty percent of the roads on our uh, of the cars on the, our roads today are commercial vehicles. But those 20% are responsible for 60% of the carbon emissions that are coming out of the, uh, out of Canada. So there is low-hanging fruit in the commercial side of these uh, the equation to decarbonize with bigger impact on that side of the equation than there would for, be for passenger cars. So you're absolutely right. Everybody's visible to what's being out there in the uh, passenger car market with the Teslas and, and the like. But I think where the real big impact that we can have across the Canadian economy is really decarbonizing the commercial fleets. Sure. And and we saw, you know, Tesla dates back to 2009. I think that's when uh, Nissan introduced its Leaf uh, Leaf car, uh, EV. So, you know, light duty uh, cars have been around for 13, 14 years already. Uh, but the we're only just now seeing electric medium duty, you know, the delivery vans and so on. And uh Tesla just introduced its uh, its uh, semi. Uh, what do they call it? The I mean, it's a Tesla semi. Now that I think about it, but anyway, that just got introduced. Uh, you know, uh, weeks ago. So this is this is uh, an area that is still open for innovation. It's still open for for jurisdictions and for companies that that want a you know to establish a first mover advantage. So what's the What's the business case here? I mean, the, the emissions is obviously an issue. And I've interviewed some uh, managers of fleets, uh, you know, for logistics fleets, for instance, uh, uh, 
buys and transport in Canada. And they seem to be very committed to lowering emissions. They're under a lot of pressure because they produce proportionally higher emissions. So we kind of get that and good on them. They're, you know, they've, they've made the mental shift to, uh, to uh, away from diesel, away from internal combustion engine. But is there a business case here where eventually this will lead to more efficiencies, lower costs, uh, I don't know, maybe autonomous vehicles that reduce, you know, solve some of their, their staffing problems. I mean, you know, what other, what other uh, factors come into play for the, uh, the transport companies? Yeah, I think there's quite a significant business case to be had. And uh, you can read that in the paper. We touched on that a little bit, but I think there's about three different key elements that are really driving the business case. One is a total, uh, total cost of ownership is lower over time with an electric vehicle than it will be for an internal combustion engine vehicle. And that's driven by a couple of key factors. One, um, obviously the energy costs are more stable and a little bit less costly than what you're gonna have for gasoline and diesel engines. But two, from a maintenance perspective, um, electric vehicles have much less moving parts. So about 80% less moving parts than an internal combustion engine, which leads to about 30 to 40% less maintenance cost over time. The other factor that never gets often built into a business case is the carbon tax. Carbon tax today is about $50 a ton, and it's projected to go up to about $170 a ton by 2030. Now, that doesn't sound like a big impact, but it's about 13 cents per uh, liter today, and that'll go up to about 43 cents per liter going forward. So it's, good. it's a pretty significant impact and a penalty that'll hit you. The other factors that aren't really related to costs are, you know, what's your impact with your customers? And is there a marketing perception that you're trying to do the right thing? And I think that's actually driving a lot of companies a lot faster than anything else. So that one's really hard to put your fingers around, but it's a share wallet. It's an increase in market penetration. It's loyal customers that is really driving that. Um, and I think those are the primary things aside from government policy and regulations that are really coming in and really trying to incentivize this. So if you take the incentives that are in the market today, we estimate there's about $3 billion of government money that could go into helping companies do this transition. And when I say do this transition, you're talking about a fairly major capital burden to get over. And that capital burden comes in two forms. One, you got to convert the vehicles over and there is a higher cost to these electric vehicles today. And I think that cost will be shown to go down over time. But for today, there's a higher burden for those costs. And there's also a higher burden for the charging infrastructure that's gonna be required to charge them. And when you think about the commercial vehicle segment, most of the vehicles that are, I would say, in the target range for electric vehicles or in the sweet spot today, are those that are doing shorter routes and are coming back home to a home base and can be charged at a central location. So the charging infrastructure is really on the burden of the operator. They have to put that charging infrastructure in place. Oftentimes that will, that will include increasing the amperage to your location. You may not have ample capacity, so you may have to build new transformers and up your capacity. And there is a capital burden to that. But I think the government is incentivizing companies to, to do this by giving them the opportunity to reduce that capital burden. And that window is narrowing. Though most of those incentives are either time-based out to 2027 from what our report shows, or they're capped. 
And so the first in best dressed are going to get these incentives. So there's a first mover advantage to taking advantage of some of the incentives that our government is offering. I, I had an opportunity a couple of weeks ago when I was in Edmonton to interview some uh, city, some managers who were fleet managers who were on the transit side. And this, we got into the question of uh, hydrogen versus electric. So if you look mm -hmm. at the city of Edmonton, they've already, out of a fleet of 960 buses, 60 of them are already battery electric. And so they wanted to try hydrogen. Now you would think that uh, the infrastructure for electric would actually be uh, an advantage. You know, I mean, you know, every city is extensively wired and it's got substations and, and all of the infrastructure. But from the city of Edmonton's point of view, that wasn't the case. In fact, where their uh, their bus barn is located is maxed out. They would have to make major uh, investments in order to upgrade that to uh, add more electric buses. And then, of course, you know, the consideration for them is operating buses in, you know, minus 20, 30, 40 below that, you know, a lot of, you know, if you're in British Columbia where I am, or maybe if you're in Ontario or Quebec, you don't get temperatures quite that that extreme. But so that's that was a consideration. And they said, look, it, you know, it really it's easier. It's cheaper for us, we think, to bring in uh, hydrogen fueling infrastructure than it is to bring to upgrade our electric infrastructure at this point. And so we're going to test out these hydrogen buses and see. So what wh what's your take on the relative competitiveness between uh, battery electric medium and heavy duty vehicles and hydrogen? I mean, it's a great question, and it's the um, it's the big test right now as to who's going to own that. I would say, you know, there is horses for courses, and I would say in the light duty and the medium duty vehicles right now that don't have tremendous amount of range requirement, the battery electric is really taking hold, and it it has a stronger business case and it has stronger operational efficiencies and optimization than hydrogen would at the moment. Um, for long haul and for the heavy duty vehicles, that is often a different story. So I've talked to the, I've spoken to the the team at, at in Edmonton in the transit business there, and for them, I think it does make a lot of sense, especially when you get into the cold temperatures of minus twenty. There is a business case there for them for operational efficiencies and the like to be able to have a hydrogen solution. Um, I think that ground that area is is in a bit of a dogfight right now. Um, I would say on the capacity side, from an electric grid perspective, you talk to the utility companies and they say they have more than ample enough generation power. The trick right now is in the distribution. Is it distributed to the right location at the right time? And if it isn't, and if terminals have to upgrade their, their capability and their capacity, who bears the burden of the cost of that? Is it with the utility company or is it with the end user? And right now that sits with the end user. So that does tip the business case in many cases. Um, and so I think there is going to be applications and it all is gonna come down to what's the environment that you're operating in? What's the payloads of the of the cargo that you're moving or what's the use case of the vehicle that you're, you're putting into circulation? Um, what kind of terrain and weather patterns are you gonna be dealing with? And what's the distance that you have to travel? And each one of those are gonna have different unique business cases. And they really do, do need to a little bit of investigation to determine what's right for you. The other thing that I'll say is the add on top of that, Edmonton's in a bit of a unique situation. Their, their uh, city has decided that they want to go all in on hydrogen. They want to be the hydrogen capital of Canada. 
And therefore, you're going to have the city or the municipalities putting a large investment in that, which could offset some of the costs. So right now, you have a very different landscape when it comes to grants and incentives across Canada. We have federal money that's available. There also is provincial money. And that provincial money can actually tip your business case one way or the other, depending on where you want to operate uh, electric vehicles, as, as an example. BC and Quebec at the moment seem to have the largest amount of incentives available to transition to electric vehicles. And sometimes that's enough to tip the business case over to say in those two provinces, let's start there. And other provinces will wait until the technology develops a little bit further. Just a bit of a, a heads up for uh, our listeners. Um, when I was in Edmonton, I had the opportunity to uh, interview uh, Edmonton Mayor uh, uh, Sohi and the city manager and uh, most interesting if you're a, a bit of a technical interest in this uh, Eddie Robar who is the uh, fleet manager for for transit and so he talked about some of these very practical issues that they're dealing with and why it's important to get buses out and and, and some of the stuff that you know some of the considerations that he has to deal with are not ones of you know if we were sitting around a coffee we might not think of them you know, for so for him, he says, "Look, I have to. Why don't I put a send a bus out the door? A bus is a bus is a bus. It's got to act like a bus. And if I have to be, you know, charging it up every half an hour, or, you know, every so many kilometers, and it can't, I can't depend on it. It's not dispatchable in in that sense." He, he said, "Then it, it's it it that, that's a big strike against it." So transit managers, fleet managers have sometimes a different way of. Of you know their perception of these technical issues are different than what yours and mine might be. You're you're absolutely right, and and, and again I come back to horses for courses. Um, you know if you look at the if you look at the majority of the transportation in the commercial segment is moving go goods and cargo around Canada, and the vast majority of that is actually moving it within about a 35 kilometer range every day, and so for that application for box trucks that are somewhere in that class you know, three to six range that um, are moving on a fixed route or nothing more wider than a 35 kilometer range every day. There's a very good use case for that. And that's going to take a big swath of the carbon emissions out of the air in Canada if we can electrify that. So I think that's the area of focus today is that, you know, do you have the opportunity within your operations to electrify early? And does it mean something to your customers to be able to make the move? I would say that you know, in the in the as we mentioned in the uh, in the paper, we actually interviewed IKEA, and IKEA is really you know driven around trying to reduce their carbon reduction and be a purpose-driven organization, and they have transport partners. They don't own their own fleet, they don't operate them, but they have transport companies that service them, and those companies, um, IKEA has to report the amount of emissions that they emit on their behalf. They call that Scope Three emissions, sure. and for IKEA. To reduce their scope three emissions, it's quite easy actually just to tr to switch transport companies if they have to, or work together with the transport companies that they have to get them to zero emissions so that it reduces that scope three. So I think that's an interesting business case because if you think about how that could be amplified across the entire uh, cargo goods movement, a client can make an easy switch to a different provider that has a greener network and reduce their scope threes very quickly by doing so. So I think those transport providers that are taking the, paying attention to this early and making the moves could really have a strategic advantage in the marketplace. And so I think you're gonna, my personal belief is you're gonna see companies that move quickly on this and get the first mover advantage 
and others are going to have to move in their way. And so I think this is going to happen fairly rapidly. And if you look at the timelines that our government has put on this, they want to see zero emissions, no new car sales, uh, gasoline or diesel engines sold by 2035. They want to have zero uh, new car sales um, of internal combustion engines by 2050. You think about that time horizon. It's not that far off in the distance. So those companies that haven't made a move yet, I think, you know, should be looking at this very seriously to say, what can they do now to make the plans to make that transition happen in a very rapid amount of time? Right. And, and and I guess we, you know, the point needs to be made that it's not one thing necessarily that motivates these the fleet electrification. You know, you mentioned some of them, reputation, rep, uh, pressure from your your uh, from your customers, like like an IKEA, government re regulations. Uh, uh, I would imagine, uh, based on the interviews I've done, I mean, some companies are just, hey, we're concerned about climate change. You know, yeah. we see that as an issue. It's it's our it's our obligation to decarbonize if we can, and we should do that. And then, of course, you have the the cost considerations and and other and maybe there's uh, you know efficiencies that can be gained uh, through a, and and companies. My 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 sense of it is is right now companies are just sorting that out. They're trying to understand the technology, understand what's available in the marketplace, and more importantly, actually, uh, this is fascinating. Uh, when I was because I talked to a representative from Nikola Trucks and and uh, Bison Transport. And it's what's coming because everybody knows that, you know, battery technology, I mean, it is moving so rapidly. Mm -hmm. And it, I, I talk to battery experts and, and they can't keep up. Mm -hmm. and, and so there's, you know, we do know that the average energy, energy density of, of lithium ion batteries is going up 7% a year. And That's we know right. that the, the we know that they're on a learning curve and costs are coming down uh, regularly. You know they haven't for the last couple of years because of commodity prices, but we know that's that's going to reverse and probably next year they'll begin dropping again. So you know if you're if you're comparing hydrogen and, and battery electric and you're going well, okay, you know hydrogen's got an advantage today, but what's it going to be doing five years from now? And if I put in the wrong infrastructure and and you know so I mean it's it's not a it's not a simple calculation. It's certainly not a simple calculation, but the one thing is true is that demand drives everything. And right now the demand is higher than it's ever been. And a large, large amount of that demand is really kind of driven by our governments and the new policies that they're putting in place and really trying to move the thing. So it's interesting that you're right. Battery technology is advancing so quickly. And there is promise in the future of, you know, things like solid state batteries that are going to have an energy density that's much greater than what we're seeing in anything in our vehicles today. And that could increase our range from, you know, class eight vehicles today that can go 300 kilometers could go up to a thousand kilometers in the future with that new technology. So will that happen? Yes. Will it happen quickly? We don't know. What's the timelines on these new technologies as they hit the market? But it's absolutely going to change the paradigm of what works and what doesn't work for battery electric going forward. And I think it's a foot race between you know, battery fuel cells and uh, battery electric fuel cells like hydrogen fuel cells and battery electric vehicles with pure batteries in them. I think there's going to be a foot race to see who really wins that. Um, the hydrogen, I think the challenge there is the infrastructure, the charging infrastructure isn't quite as wide as what the, the electric infrastructure is at this moment. So they've got a lot of work to do and a lot of capital to go into that. But there's a tremendous amount of problem, promise for you know, those heavy duty vehicles that might need that application. And then you also think about large engine vehicles like um, 
ferries and trains and things like that that are going to have to have some alternative zero emission solution and hydrogen could be the solution for that so i think it's going to each one of them will find their place yeah i get into debate sometimes with with the we'll call them laggards and it's not about you know they say well why should we do that like we're, we're such a canada is such a small percentage of global emissions you know the 1.7 percent why don't we just wait for everybody else to do it and we'll kind of come along when when everything's you know cheap or, you know trucks are cheap and and uh cars are you know electric vehicles are cheap but the there is a big penalty i think for being a laggard this time around on this s curve on electric vehicle s curves in particular because uh, when I talk to, and this is interesting, I'd be, I I want to get your perspective on this because you're talking about two Canadians all the time. Right. 50% of my, my interviewees are experts in the United States, Europe, or Asia. And when I talk to them, I get a completely different point of view on, on pace of the, of the transition than I do when I'm talking to a Canadian. Canadians are much more, I mean, yes, you know, they're, they're anxious to get going and they, but we you talk to somebody from Asia, and they go, "Oh no, no, no! You don't have a decade. You don't have. You have two years to five years to do this because there are a bunch of hungry small countries." And I always use Vietnam, Malaysia, and Indonesia as examples. They want those supply chains. They want those industrial clusters. They want to be the first mover because that gives them an enormous advantage in building those clusters and those supply chains, and. When you're talking to fleet managers and and policymakers and and others in this industry, do you get the sense that Canadians understand just how much in the last two to three years the pace of the transition has has accelerated at the global level, and what that means for them? I'm sure glad you asked that question, and I think the the easy answer there is some do, some don't, and I would say on mass. We don't. As Canadians, we don't really get that global picture. I had the pleasure of living in Asia for 18 years. I was based out of Hong Kong and I led a global innovation team for Nissan. And I can tell you that, um, you know, China took this very seriously. And China has put a, a policy in place that no new car sales after 2030 can be anything other than zero emissions. So with China being the largest car market on the planet and growing at the fastest pace, the OEMs took this very seriously and are changing their platforms as we speak to be able to service that growth market. So even if we're not taking it seriously here in Canada, every car manufacturer around the world is if they want to sell in China, which I'm sure everyone does, given the fact that it's the biggest market and the one that's growing. So with that backdrop, I think we as Canadians actually have an opportunity to lean into this and be a leader in this space. And that's different. So you think in our Canadian mining industry, we have 35 of the 42 critical minerals that it takes to make batteries. We have a chance to lean in on this in a very big way. And a lot of the battery manufacturers are standing up and taking note, particularly on the back of the war in Ukraine, where there's a tremendous amount of uh, critical minerals hidden in that mining sector here. And so they're looking for alternatives. So if Canada could prove these things out, here in our small little sandbox, considering that on a global stage, there's a great opportunity to scale our technologies out. And if we can figure out grid capacity constraints and solve some of those issues here in Canada, there's a great opportunity for us to industrialize some of these solutions and take them on the global stage. So I think this is the time is now for Canada to really be leaning in on this in a big, big way. 
I'll tell a little anecdote uh, that illustrates the point. And in, in October, I was invited to Ottawa to sit on a, a panel to talk about a report I'd helped to write. And uh, one of my co-panelists uh, was uh, Michael Wernick, the, the former uh, chief of the Privy Council. You know, from if you're not from Canada, that means basically a top bureaucrat in the Canadian government and, and, and an economist and now a professor of economics, I think, at either Carleton or University of Ottawa. And. And we got into it a little bit because he kept saying, you know, he said, but look, we've been through these changes before. We'll muddle through. Don't worry about it. You know, the, 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 the impetus is, it's just not that, that urgent. Well, no, we've been here before. We know how to do this. Well, don't worry about it. And of course I took the opposite point of view. And, and I, but I think the reason I tell this anecdote is because I think that Wernick is plugged into the into the Canadian zeitgeist. I, I think that's how most Canadians think, and I think it's how a lot of policy think makers think. And I think there's a lot of legacy, um, you know, incumbents in big industries like oil and gas is one that we report on, and I think who share that that point of view. Don't worry about it. Akuna batata. We'll get there. Don't you know? And. I, I share your view. I, I I think that as Canadians, we're uh, it's a it's a it's a it's a threat uh, that we have to address at some point. And uh, with anybody, but we'll we'll stop flogging this horse. We'll get, we'll get move on to the next one, uh, to the next uh, set of questions. Because I do want to ask you about when you're talking to manufacturers, when you're talking to uh, uh, fleet managers, what about transportation as a service? Because I interviewed a company down in, uh, well, it's actually one in Vancouver, and then there was one in, in California. And what they do for, uh, and I think they're a medium duty at this point, uh, not heavy duty. But, you know, they will come in, they'll bring the vans, they'll bring the vehicles, they'll build you the infrastructure, they'll, and they sell it all to you for a X amount per kilometer uh because your business model lends itself to those kinds of calculations, predictable and and so on. And the question I asked of the interviewee was, is it being well received? And if it is, why? And and the reason is because they it helps them to make the transition quicker because they can get up the learning curve a lot more. You know, if they had to do all of that, the infrastructure and specking out the vehicles and all of that, it would take them a while to learn all of you know, make be able to make their decisions. Whereas this way, they they buy a turnkey kind of uh, solution, and they're up and running in a, a much shorter period of time. What's your take on that? Yeah, I think that's an interesting model, and we've seen that in the aerospace industry for over thirty years, right? Where um, uh, uh, air airline operator like in Air Canada used to own the airframe, they would buy it, they would own the asset, they would operate it, and they would maintain it. And that was all done in-house. Over time, you had companies like GE Capital stepped in and they were they were the leaser, and they would lease that airframe off to um, uh, an operator like Air Canada. And then that evolved into something they called power by the hour programs, where they take care of everything. They do all the maintenance of the aircraft, and then Air Canada just now puts bums in seats, and that's their focus business. I think that's a model that is now starting to take hold in the transport sector on the ground. And will it evolve even further? My belief is now with electrification in front of us and soon to be autonomous vehicles around the corner, there's going to be a great opportunity for these fleet operators or transport providers or transport as a service, whatever you call them, um, to step into this space. And I think, you know, uh, uh, companies are going to start questioning, 
is this a core business of mine? Does it give me some kind of a strategic advantage to own and operate my own fleet? Or do I just need the service provided at the lowest possible cost without any headaches? And that takes a lot of liabilities off their plate and puts it into the hands of somebody who's an expert and can consolidate those needs across multiple clients and serve people in a much better fashion. I think on the flip side of that coin, what's really interesting to note is we talk to many of the ministries and the municipalities across Canada, and they're concerned about you know, things like traffic congestion and carbon emissions overall. And they talk a lot about specifically around COVID when e-commerce blew up like it did, the white van syndrome and all these white vans running around on our streets that aren't fully utilized at the moment. And I have a, you know, I spent 15 years in logistics and uh, I know that industry right well. Capacity management is really tricky. And I think if you can have a transport as a service provider that can start to consolidate demand across a wider array of customers, you can bring the utilization and the, and the capacity management way up. You can reduce costs because you've got economies of scale and, and critical mass. Um, so I think that's that's an area to watch. I think you're going to see a lot of involvement in, in that space. There's really, um, I'll give a little bit of a plug to a, a partner that we've worked with in the past, a great company here out of Vancouver, a little startup called 7Gen. And they're oh, off. That, that, that was the company I interviewed and it was 7Gen, yeah. yeah. There you go. So they're offering EV as a service and they're offering a lease package where it's the vehicle itself and all the charging infrastructure that has to go around it um, all in one monthly payment, which is making it easier for clients to be able to service this. So I think you're going to see companies like that evolve over time and um, and watch that space. Now, you mentioned autonomous uh, vehicles, and I, I first interviewed Tony Seba in May of 2017, shortly after he released his report that I guess in some ways made his reputation uh, was around mobility or transportation as a service. And, you know, he was predicting by 2030, we'd, you know, 95% of the miles traveled in the U S would be autonomous, <laughs> would be robo taxis. And, and, and it turned out, you know, that Tony was, was a little enthusiastic, we'll say, okay. uh, but the basic trends are there. And uh, what, only what we've discovered is, is the, um, that that uh, making autonomous vehicles safe and dependable and and reasonably cost it's tougher than we thought. Not that we're not going to solve it, but it's just it's more difficult, more technically challenging than than we thought. So you know we're not going to see Tony's predictions anytime soon. And but that's on the robo taxi. That's on the light duty side, um, where you're moving people around. What about when you're moving goods and services around? Where's the business case, and where are we at in terms of of the tech and the timing? I actually think the business case is amplified on the movement of goods side of the equation. And I think you're going to see that segment move faster in autonomous vehicle technology than anywhere else. Mainly because you think about if you're if you're thinking about a, a transition to a zero emission fleet today, you're probably going to want to make the consideration that you want to have it electrified or and you also want to have it AV uh, or autonomous vehicle ready, which means it needs to be drive by wire. So that at some stage when that autonomous technology comes in, you can plug it into your vehicle and you can transition your fleet. That does a lot of things to you. One, it takes the driver out of the equation or could take the driver out of the equation. And right now there's been a massive driver shortage in the Canadian market. And that I don't think is going away anytime soon. So it reduces a constraint that you have in your operations today. It also allows you to move those vehicles around in different times of the day that you never could before. So you can operate them 24-7 if you needed to, which really changes everything. 
And if you electrify, and we talked about the total cost of ownership before, if you electrify and you autonomize your vehicle, we're talking about an improvement in cost by anywhere from two to five X. So somebody is going to have a major cost advantage by making that move before someone else does. And again, I think you're going to see a massive wake of those that have to play catch up in that space. Now, there's some interesting moves that are going on. You probably all read about them, but you know, Amazon has put a massive investment into Rivian and they have 100,000 vehicles on order. It's interesting that if they get all those vehicles and they can autonomize those vehicles at some stage, their logistics network is going to be much more cost effective than anything else in the market. I think that's going to drive a lot of demand for others to really take, take notice and move at the same pace. So you're going to watch that space. I think it's going to move very quickly. The other note that I'll, I'll give another little plug to a great company we work with called Gaddock. And Gaddock is doing autonomous vehicles right now for uh, a few pilots in Canada. One of them is our great grocer Loblaws. And right. so they're moving, they're moving what they call middle mile logistics between a distribution center and the forward stocking location on a fixed route that goes back and forth on the same road every day. They're, they're moving autonomous vehicles back and forth on that road. And it's level four autonomy. And that's pretty interesting because across the North American market, not too many people are doing level four autonomy. We're doing it here in Canada today. So I think, you know, again, if we talk about putting Canada on the global stage and taking a leadership position, we've got a great opportunity to really break some ground here and use Canada as a sandbox for these, these new testing of, of this new technology and put it into practice and really look to scale it up. I think there's a great opportunity for us as Canadians to do that. Yeah. Next time you talk to Gaddick, um, tell them that they really need to respond to my emails when I, when I email them asking for an interview. I, I will. I promise I will do that. Thank you. Uh, you know, talking about what where Canada can get a, 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 a first mover advantage here. Uh, the industry is being disrupted on so many levels. It's being disrupted at the tech level. It's being disrupted at the, at the regulatory level. It's being disrupted at the business model level. And, and I think that we don't put enough, uh, we don't pay enough attention to how important it is to get all that stuff sorted out and figure out which business models work and then be able to scale that up across the economy and what kind of an, an economic advantage, a competitive advantage that would give us if we we do that. And uh, so I'm I'm hoping, I'm hoping that we do figure it out and we do maintain a first mover advantage and and that gives us a, a leg up down the road. Well, Darren, this has been a fascinating discussion. I really appreciate you coming here. Any final thoughts, anything we should have talked about maybe that we didn't? Um, I mean, the one thing that we didn't spend too much time on is on the charging infrastructure side of things. So I think, you know, for those companies that are looking to transition to a zero emission fleet, where do you start and how do you get going on this? I think, you know, it, it's 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 an, an equation that has multiple factors to it. The basic one is the vehicles. The other one is the charging infrastructure. And the third one, I would say, is the grants grants and incentives to help you get there. Um to, to really start, you know, the early movers are going to have an advantage because there is a supply shortage on the vehicle front. And so those that are coming in early are going to, you know, it's a moving escalator. The sooner you get on it, the better off you are. On the charging infrastructure side, we talked about the distribution of the utilities. And again, if you get in early with the utility companies, they're going to be very busy building out new infrastructure. If you're in early, you get you get the opportunity to get that first. 
And last but not least, on the on the uh, grants and incentives side, these windows are closing up. Not to say that the government won't issue more grants and incentives but in the future, but the ones that are out there now are either time-bound or they're capped. So there's no better time now, in my opinion, to really you know, take the opportunity to be a first mover advantage and take take um, take the high road and ideally, you know, get in there with uh, with something that's going to make your customers happy and make your business look good overall. Well, sounds like good advice to me. Thanks a lot, Darren. Really appreciate you uh, coming on the show today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.